Hello and welcome back to Catching Up on Capitol Hill, a series in which we discuss the latest in tax legislation and in tax policy. I'm your host, John Gimigliano. Today is Thursday, December 22nd. And well, folks, we've come to the end of the line, it seems, for tax legislation in 2022. And it appears that that line is a dead end. Congress has approved an omnibus spending bill for most of 2023. And taxes standards were not included in that $1.7 trillion bill. I know that's deeply disappointing to many of you, in particular, those of you hoping for a fix on RE amortization. So, how did it come to this? That's an interesting question, and it is the question we will take up today. And to help me do that, I am joined by Carol Coolish and Jen Acuna. Carol, I want to start with you. So, let's just start big picture, and then we'll narrow in more specifically on tax. But do your best to outline what the Democratic priorities were coming into this negotiation around the omnibus. Well, John, I think it's a real general matter. The Democrats were trying to get as much of their priorities funded as possible before next Congress when the House switches to Republican control. So they were fighting for an omnibus to get funding through FY24, and they had a lot of priorities that they were fighting for. Emergency assistance for Ukraine was high on the list. Negotiating an increase in non-defense discretionary spending in general was important to them, given the Republican interest in increasing defense funding beyond the administration's request, but concerns about the amount of domestic spending. But they also had particular programs they were fighting for, like nutrition programs, housing assistance, home heating programs, college affordability, healthcare-related changes, disaster relief, and funding for the NLRB, the National Labor Relations Board. They also had some issues they weren't as successful on with climate change initiatives, more funding for COVID, more funds for processing migrants at the border, more funding for family planning. So some of these things they were successful on, others they weren't, but they had a lot of big picture priorities, major priorities going into the negotiations. Oh, that's a lot. What about on tax? Did they come to the table with any really important tax agenda items? Yeah, I think their number one priority was the child tax credit expansion in the reconciliation bill that had passed earlier in the Biden administration, ARPA, American Rescue Plan Act. There had been enhancements to the child credit, and Democrats were trying to fight for as much of an enhancement to the child credit as possible, perhaps not as much as was in ARPA, but something that would be greater than the child credit that had existed pre-ARPA under the TCJA. So that, I think, was a major tax tax priority for them was trying to get some sort of additional enhancement to the child tax credit. Right. Enhancement over the existing law, not the expired ARPA version. Right. Right. Over the version that was in the so-called TCJA. Probably something short, realistically speaking, of what was in ARPA, but something still over what the law was prior to ARPA. And I would add to that, whether this is an overall Democratic priority or just a priority from the Ways and Means Committee, but we know that Chairman Richie Neal had a strong interest in getting additional retirement legislation, which has tax items in it as well, coming to the table. So I would add that. Do you agree with that? Oh, yeah. There was bipartisan support for retirement tax savings, and that actually made it into the bill. And that was both on the House side and on the Senate side. And because there was bipartisanship and you didn't have different views from different parties that couldn't be worked out, that was a relatively easier thing to do, something that was important to members of both parties that didn't have a lot of political baggage associated with it. It was sort of the easier thing to do. Yep. Got it. All right. Now, Jen, same question to you, but on the Republican side. What did Republicans come to the negotiating table with as priorities? 
Well, I think with the flip in the House, Republicans felt like they had more leverage to push back against a lot of those priorities that Carol just mentioned. In addition to there was a big push on this 10% increase in defense spending. There were just a broad range of issues where it was mostly pushing back, trying to keep the bill as skinny as possible. You always look at the summaries that come out, the partisan summaries. What are they touting in the bill? that just passed. And most of it is cramming down on increases in spending, trying to keep it as streamlined as possible, touting that defense budget increase. And one thing that will segue us into tax, also agency funding. And one of those agencies, the big agency, is the Internal Revenue Service funding. And what else on tax? And you mentioned IRS, which is more of a funding issue than a pure tax issue. Did Republicans come to the table with any tax priorities? This was more of a bipartisan tax priority. I think that retirement package, as Carol mentioned, it was a Chairman Neal priority, but it was also a ranking member Brady priority. So this was a priority for Brady when Brady was the chairman of the Ways and Means Committee. This was also a Senate priority on a bipartisan basis. We had Senator Portman and others just really pushing Senator Wyden, you know, the chairman of the Senate Finance Committee, really pushing for this retirement package. And that's in the tax base that we saw materialize in the bill. But what about some of those other expired business items? We heard a lot about them. Do you think that Republicans came to the table with those as important issues? That was the assumption heading into this whole debate on the year-end deal on this omnibus package, that Republicans were coming to the table with those expiring tax provisions on the business side, 174, like you just mentioned, 163J, another biggie. That's that interest limitation that went from the EBIT, taxpayer unfavorable, and a new one that's coming up where bonus is going from 100%, ticking down to 80% at the end of this year. So for becomes effective next year. Those were the expected Republican asks in the package. But debatable how much they asked for them. Debatable. So and that's why I say expected, because right. not a whole lot of push for those at the end of the day. Well, let's talk about that then. So in the case of all the so-called extenders, child tax credit, the version from ARPA, and these TCJA provisions, as you mentioned, the RE expensing rule, the interest limitation rule, bonus depreciation, as well as the whole list, long list of other extenders, none of those got into the bill. So many people had high hopes. We've talked about them multiple times on this podcast as to whether or not they would get in there. We certainly thought there was a chance, but they didn't. So let's do something a little different here. I'm going to go through a series of theories as to why perhaps they did not get into the bill. I'm going to ask you both to react to those theories. You know, do we agree with this theory or not? Okay, so theory number one, this is why extenders did not get into the bill. Blame the lobbyists. That On the child tax credit, maybe you could argue that the child tax credit itself does not have a natural lobbying constituency the way business provisions do. So maybe there wasn't enough push on the CTC. And on the business provisions, arguably, those lobbyists either lobbied insufficiently or ineffectively on getting them done. So let me turn to you and get your immediate reactions. Oh, Carol, I'll start with you. What do you think of that theory as to why we don't have extenders? Well, look, at the end of the day, when the lawmakers were talking about what they really needed to pass the bill, and just in the past 24 hours when senators have said what amendments they needed, 
there wasn't anything about extenders on those lists. So this suggests to me that although there may have been support for extenders, it wasn't a top issue given other priorities. And many of those said are really big priorities outside of tax. But obviously, whenever you have a question where something isn't somebody's top priority, it may be a priority, but it's not their top one. I think it's a legitimate question to raise as to whether more effective lobbying could have changed the way things work. Now, I do think, and I know you'll get to this, that to me, the bigger picture here is that there are so many other issues that are just of such broad importance or significance, big picture policy issues that were at play, that this wasn't just a tax bill. That combined with the fact that there was some controversy associated with the extenders package, given, as I said before, that some of the driving forces behind it, the child credit and the TCJA, came out of bills that were partisan bills. TCJA and ARPA. I think those are big factors. But yeah, anytime something isn't the top priority that someone's saying, wait, stop everything, I must have this, you do have to at least question whether there's something that could have been done differently in terms of lobbying. Jen, let me ask you, let's just talk about the business provisions for a moment. Let's talk about 174, right? That was everybody's most important issue. Do you think it's fair to say that it was lobbied insufficiently? Was there enough lobbying on 174? All of the reads that we've been getting is that it was always an issue, and it's kind of like what Carol mentioned. There are many meetings on 174, but it was never really passed as an existential issue, as a make or break, we must have this or bad things are going to happen. And usually that's what it takes to become one of these leading priorities, like a must include in a must pass bill. That clearly did not happen. So at the end of the day, a lot of it does rest on how forcefully the issue was lobbied or in the case that was made, right? When you have folks on the Hill saying, "Uh, 12 months expired, what's the difference between 12 months and 18 months expired on 174? You really question whether or not the urgency, that argument with respect to urgency was made. Right. So we don't think it was a lack of quantity of lobbying because we know that our contacts on the Hill were like, please don't make me take another 174 meeting. It's a different question, though, as to whether or not that lobbying made the case. And maybe the case was not makeable, in fairness. Maybe the dynamic was just not going to be there to make it makeable. But there clearly was the volume of lobbying on the issue. It just didn't seem to sell the deal, as you said, Jeff. Let me ask you one other question. This is kind of a out of left field question, but maybe do you think that that IRS guidance we got on 174 at the 11th hour last week, did anything to undermine the effectiveness of lobbying on 174, at least from the Hill's point of view? I think that's entirely possible. One of the big pressure issues, one of the levers was taxpayers don't even have guidance yet from Treasury on how to start reporting 174, the amortized expenses. That was somewhat of a pressure relief valve, whether or not that RevProc included some opportunities in it for, took some of the pressure off, some opportunities for planning potentially. Right, I think from the business community's point of view, they're like, well, IRS told us how to do it, but it's still, they told us how to do something terrible. So why would that take the pressure off? But it is possible that the Hill's point of view is that the IRS has got this under control. It's not quite as urgent. Who knows? It's just another theory. All right, let me go to another theory. Do you think that part of the problem was simply that the tax extenders were too expensive, that the cost was too great to fit into this bill? Carol, what do you think? Personally, I don't think that 
was a significant issue. If you look at the past history of extenders, you you come down to the end of the year, you've got stuff that's expiring or expired. Usually both parties just agree to extend the package, sort of matter of course, and they don't pay for it. They never do. And kind of move along. There's a lot of statement about how, oh, we need to do things to not have temporary tax provisions, but it keeps happening again and again. So I didn't hear anything about it really being the money. What I think is that we're just not dealing with the typical extenders package that we've dealt with in the past. In the past, extenders packages have been relatively non-controversial. As I said, it's been almost a matter of rubber stamping things, complaining about the fact that we have temporary tax policy, but rubber stamping it at the end of the day. And I think now what we're seeing is our engines, our drivers for the extenders package, again, are things that have come out of partisan bills, the stuff out of the TCJA that Jen was talking about, the child credit out of ARPA, where there's tension between parties. And there's some progressives who, as a general matter, look at if you don't get the child credit, they're saying this is a business bill. What's in here for individuals, for struggling lower middle income families? We're not just going to rubber stamp that. So I think it's become the extenders train used to be kind of nonpartisan. It just everybody goes along. And it's become a little bit more with the nature of the extenders that are in it now and the nature of today's Congress that there have been partisan issues that make it a more difficult thing to move than when it was just a matter of course pro forma. Let's just move this along. And again, in the past, they didn't pay for it. So I don't think it was the money that was a problem, even though some of the items they were talking about that were expensive child credits depending upon what you do with it, could be pretty expensive. But they've done expensive things in the past. I think it's just that it's now got political. The extenders train has political luggage on it at this point. Mm-hmm. Where <laughs> I like that analogy. So that's a fair point of view. Sure, these weren't nothing, especially if the child tax credit was going to be pricey. But in the end, this is a big bill. There's a lot of money in there sloshing around. So I don't know. What do you think, Jen? Was it the cost? I don't think it's the cost either. I totally agree with Carol. This was a one7 trillion dollar bill. These proposals, these extenders, a drop in the bucket by comparison. We're dealing with in the trillions, not billions. And I think it was more of a question of how big were the wins, not the dollars. Was a child tax credit just going to be viewed as a much bigger win for Democrats than getting some of those business proposals, 174, getting relief on 174, 163J bonus, then that would be characterized as a Republican win, like just weighing those two wins, one versus the other. I think the perception was that they just weren't balanced enough at the end of the day. I agree. And the business provisions in particular were very low cost because they were timing. 174, as we saw in Build Back Better, cost almost nothing because of the timing nature of it reverses itself in the congressional budget window. Bonus depreciation, largely the same thing. Yes, 163J would cost money, but not a lot by this standard relative to the bigger bill. And depending on what version of the child tax credit they could have negotiated, I'm with all of you. It probably wasn't the cost. Okay, so let's put that one aside. How about this one? And I think we kind of hit on this, but we couldn't do tax extenders because this bill was too narrowly focused on just funding and we couldn't fit tax into this bill. Carol, what do you think about that theory? 
I'm a no on that theory. I don't perceive the bill as having been narrowly focused at all. It addresses a lot of issues. I think a lot of the issues are just much bigger issues that affect much broader scope. And as a fact of the matter, there is tax in it. We talked about it. There's retirement savings provisions that are tax provisions that are in it. They're in it because they're bipartisan support. There's not the same kind of political controversy associated with it. It was sort of easy to put on it. So I don't think it's that the bill just couldn't accommodate tax. I think it's because they couldn't reach a deal on a tax title that both parties could agree to. There's just political baggage when it comes to the extender's title. At the end of the day, they couldn't reach a palatable agreement. Do you agree with that, Jen? I completely agree. If you look at the bill, it just runs the gamut. This has a ton of different things in it, including tax. So it's not even that it was too narrowly tailored to have a tax title. There was a tax title. It was extenders that were left off, not tax overall. Okay, well, let's go to another theory then. So throw that one out. Is it possible that both parties stepped back from the negotiating table because both thought it was possible to get a better deal next year? Carol, maybe I'll just ask you from the Democrats' point of view. Do you think they stepped away because they thought maybe next year we'll get a better deal on the child tax credit or other priorities? No, <laughs> not with the divided, not with Republicans taking control of the House next year. I doubt they thought they'd get a better deal on that. Now, they did get a lot of stuff in terms of other non-tax domestic spending programs that were of interest to them. So they did score a lot of victories there. But I don't think they were thinking that next year with Republicans controlling the House, they would get a better deal in terms of a child tax credit provision. And Jen, what about from a Republican point of view? Do they think they're going to get a better deal next year? I think they do. I think they think they're going to get a better deal. And in particular, I will note, expanding the child tax credit has been a Republican issue in the past. It's a Democratic issue now. But I think it wasn't whether or not they want the child tax credit to be expanded. I think it was really a rub on the flavor of the child tax credit expansion. You have a number of Republican child tax credit expansion proposals. They just didn't match up with this ARPA extender. And I think that Republicans feel, and this is a theory, that next year they have the opportunity to set the stage for their flavor of child tax credit expansion. So even though you would still need to get 60 votes and, of course, pass the democratically controlled Senate, you're saying at least having the pen in their hand in the House, creating the original version, that that would give them a better opportunity in getting a better deal on these. Is that what you're saying, Jen? I think so. I think having yeah. the pen is always some leverage, at least, and to be able to say, hey, this is my proposal on the child tax credit that we're going to move forward with. That credit is always a big deal on the Hill. Yep. Fair enough. All right, let's move on to our next theory then. So that one's divided, whether or not that actually played into it. Here's another theory that as they're at the negotiating table, things just got too political because this tax deal, as they're working on it, got derailed by unrelated and partisan issues. And I'm thinking in particular about the sort of last minute move by House Democrats to release former President Trump's tax returns and then further action from the January 6th committee. Do you think that played into it in any way at all, Carol? I'm going to go with no again, because once again, there's a lot of big programs that are funded in this bill. The bill did pass the Senate after these things, these other political events happened. It includes a lot of different programs, a lot of different things. So I think it doesn't have anything to do with those events. I could see them potentially, if that were the case, it should have derailed other parts of the legislation as well. I think there are some issues specific to tax that we've talked about before, to the extenders 
to the extenders package that, again, other priorities more important combined with the fact that there were politically controversial, political differences in views as to what should be in, how that package should be crafted and what it should contain. Do you agree with that, Jen? I don't disagree, but I don't think that the dissemination of tax returns, public dissemination of confidential tax records helped Democrats get wins out of Republicans during the negotiation, in the tax base at least. Certainly didn't help at the Ways and Means or Senate Finance Committee levels. Yeah, it's a question as to whether or not it hurt or to what degree. It clearly did not help. And I think we can say that because we've seen Republican reaction to that by Ways and Means members who will be in the majority next year. So it certainly did not help. Let's just leave it at that. Whether or not it hurt, debatable. Okay, what else? Oh, how about this one? We wanted to get extenders. We just ran out of time, unfortunately, so we couldn't get it done. What do you think, Carol? No, I think staff has been prepared for quite a while to put forth whatever draft of whatever compromise might come up, members might agree to right away. I mean, it's not that difficult. They know the options that are there. They're prepared with the variety of options. I don't think that they ran out of time to draft it. In terms of ultimate negotiations, the longer things go on, one never knows what might happen. But I don't think it's a matter of just, oh, we don't have time to draft this up. They know how to do that, if that's what you're asking. No, it isn't what I'm asking. And all of us as former staffers know that when there's a deal, you got to figure out how to get it drafted. And to the revenue estimators, they got to figure out how to get it estimated. Whatever amount of time there is, they will do it. So I agree but with I you But I think that. they... They were already probably ready. I imagine right, they've yeah. estimated like all the different permutations you could come up with that <laughs> right. were being discussed and that staff probably had drafted different alternatives. So it's just a matter of like, OK, let's spit this one out of the printer and here we go. Do you agree with that, Jen? That time was not the issue. That time was not the issue in this one. They had months to work out a deal on extenders. And extenders, it's not drafting, right? This isn't something difficult to draft. These are date changes, policy tweaks. This is not like a labor intensive process. It's all about the negotiation and they had weeks to do it. And usually these things come together, like you said, John, in a matter of hours, right? If there's a deal reached, there's certainly enough time to accommodate drafting of the legislative text. This was just a failure to come to a mutually beneficial framework on tax extenders. Yep, I think that's right. All right, let me throw out one last theory. And this is probably the hardest one to answer because it's a more abstract question. But do you think it's possible that when both sides came together on taxes, that both overestimated the other side's interest in getting a deal done on tax? What do you think, Carol? Do you think it's possible that Democrats overestimated Republican interest in getting a deal, in particular on those business provisions? Yeah, maybe. There definitely does seem like that could be possible. You could see the Democrats thinking that you know, the Republicans would want to do something, particularly with the ones that have already kicked in, like 174, that they'd want to do something about that and that the Democrats thought that they could get something richer on the child credit in exchange. The Democrats also might have been thinking that Republicans might not want to take the risk that next Congress, they might not be able to pull together a bill that gets bipartisan and bicameral support in the divided government to which they can attach an extenders package and reach agreement between the chambers at that point on an extenders package. They may have been sort of thinking that, okay, given that, Republicans will come to the table and we'll ultimately get something closer to what we want. I wasn't in the room. I don't know exactly what happened, but it strikes me as, yeah, it's possible that Democrats may have overestimated the willingness of Republicans to deal. 
What do you think, Jen? Do you think it's possible from the Republicans' point of view that they overestimated how much Democrats really wanted to get a deal done on child tax credit this December? I don't think that they overestimated how much Democrats wanted child tax credit. I think Democrats were really transparent with their desire to do something on the child tax credit. I think they overestimated how much they'd also want the business tax provisions. And that kind of changed the dynamic, right? That it didn't reduce the carrying cost of the business tax provisions or of the child tax credit. And I think that was the issue. Like we used to joke that they were posturing when they said they were willing to walk away from the negotiation with respect to business tax provisions. And we have a scenario where both parties walked away, right? Republicans walked away from the business tax provisions and Democrats walked away from the child tax credit because they just weren't able to come to a mutually beneficial agreement. So yeah, yeah, I think hands were overplayed and underplayed. So <laughs> simultaneous and mutual overplaying and underplaying. I guess that basically says it all. And probably we should leave it right there. Well, that's all we have time for today. So thanks, Jen, and thanks, Carol. We've gone on long enough, so let me keep my parting comments too brief today. Look, we could go on and on and on about why the extenders deal did not happen. It didn't happen even though the environment for it was really just right. Congress made a bipartisan agreement on an omnibus spending bill. That bill had many unrelated priorities piled into it. The bill had a tax title, opening the door to any tax item, really. But the why really doesn't matter as much as the what now. And as I said in our last episode, getting these extenders done in 2023 is not going to be a slam dunk. And doing them retroactively back to the beginning of 2022, well, even less so. So now we will find out the implications of no enhanced child tax credit, the implications of R&D amortization, of reduced interest deductibility, of lesser bonus depreciation, all at the same time that the U.S. economy appears to be steering into a recession, one that we hope is mild, but that's unknown. Perhaps the implications to all this will be minimal. And if so, there's a lesson to be had there on the efficacy of the underlying tax provisions themselves. But perhaps the impact is significant and Congress might have non-buyers remorse. Well, then I guess we could blame Congress and people will. But we can also ask the question, how is it possible that the advocates for these provisions failed to make their case to Congress? Look, Monday morning quarterbacking is rarely fair, but it's undeniably true that when you wake up Monday morning and you find an L in the win-loss column, questions will be asked and have to be answered. And the most salient of those questions will be, what has to be done differently in 2023 than was done in 2022 to get a better outcome? I promise you, as the calendar turns to 2023, we will be with you to ask and to try and answer that very question. With that, thanks again for tuning in to Catching Up on Capitol Hill. Please don't forget to submit your questions, your comments, and suggestions to our inbox. I wish you and those important to you the happiest of holidays. Take care, and I hope to see you soon.